this thing right here is letting all the ladies know what guys talk about. You know, the finer things in life. <laughs> Check it out. Ooh, that dress so scandalous, and you know another nigga couldn't handle it. So you're shaking that thing like who's the ish with the look in your eyes so devilish. Uh, you like to dance on the hip hop spots. To the cruise, like an actor dot. Not just urban, she liked the pop Cause she was living la vida loca She had dumps like a truck, truck, truck Thighs like wah, wah, wah Baby, move your butt, butt, butt uh, I think I'll sing it again She had dumps like a truck, truck, truck Thighs like wah, wah, wah All night long Let me see that Brand new episode of the Genre Equality Podcast. I'm Hitzer. I'm Isa. Uh, and this month, we are rejoined uh, by a, a rather regular contributor to the Genre Equality channel. Uh, his name is Christopher Falk. He has been on the Genre Equality Podcast, our flagship show, and also our other spin-off show, Behold. Uh, introduce yourself, Chris. Hi, guys. Uh, my name is Christopher. Um, glad to be here. I'm from Dark Matter Theatrics, a collective of theatre artists uh, here based here in Singapore. Nice. Uh, that's so awesome. Um, I'm sure a lot of you are familiar with, with Chris and all of that. Uh, Chris, uh, welcome back. How, how does it feel to be back on our podcast? Oh, pretty great. Uh, lo- love, the, love the new uh, stuff that uh, I've, I've been watching these few days. That's, that's awesome, man. Always uh, happy to recommend to uh, our guest uh, podcast host and also to all of you if you haven't seen any of the topics here. We'll try to keep it spoiler light. Uh, but of course, we are, he- we, are, we are here to review the month that was in sci-fi, horror, and fantasy. There's a lot to talk about. Um, our major topics is actually uh, what we do in The Shadow Season 2, the television spin-off of Taika Waititi's uh, vampire mockumentary. Um, I will we'll also be talking about The Vast of Night, which is an indie feature on Amazon Studios. Mm-hmm. Um, I know it's not getting a lot of press out there. Nobody's really talking about it at all. But I did want to highlight it because it was one of my favorite discoveries of the month. Uh, yeah, um, and beyond that, there's a lot of other stuff also. Legends of Tomorrow, Kipo, and the Age of Wonder Beasts, uh, Penny Dreadful's spin-off show, etc., etc. But let's begin with, I think, one of our favorites of the month. Um, it is the second season of What We Do in the Shadows. What a hoot. Um, what a hoot. <laughs> uh, what a superb owl. Um, it is, as we, as we mentioned, it's uh, based off like a Watiti's mockumentary. Um, charmingly low stakes, date deadpan horror comedy about a quartet of vampire housemates getting on each other's nerves in Staten Island. Uh, thankfully, season two remains a silly delight. Um, what? Uh, let's let's begin for our guest first. Uh, what, what do you think about uh, the second season of what we do in the shadows, Chris? Uh, I'm glad you said quartet because if you said trio, then I would forget about Colin Robinson all over again. Man, <laughs> Colin Robinson is is kind of the MVP of the show, in my opinion. Yes, yeah. he is. He is. Yeah. Uh, he, um, uh, every, every like this second season, like what he brings to the table is just above and beyond. I thought after season one's uh one episode introduction to the emotional vampire. Emotional vampire, was it? Yep. Yeah. Energy vampire. And no no, he's an energy vampire. She was an oh, yeah. emotional vampire. So after I thought after that there was just nothing else to go on in terms of building 
him up in terms of his powers or his uh his capabilities but oh we were we were so wrong this season mm-hmm. yeah so i i really did i did did enjoy uh this particular season um uh, i did think the the escalation uh for each episode did uh did feel a bit one uh sometimes a bit one note uh mm-hmm. because i could kind of uh track where the story was going but mm-hmm. there were other episodes where just right off the bat within the first five minutes you just go like huh that was not the that's not the premise of today's episode i mean like that's what what do you do with the introduction uh, with Guillermo in the beginning for for what and then you suddenly mm-hmm. switch it around so mm-hmm. um yeah just not to give any spoilers but i i found myself uh uh recounting like my own uh, assumptions about where the episode was going each time round during season two. Uh, wonderful. Um, as with a lot of great comedy, oftentimes the best uh, punchlines are the ones you don't see. Uh, and I think season two delivered a lot of predictable and unpredictable punchlines. <laughs> uh, what do you think about it, Isa? Uh, I, I was a bit worried going into season two, right? Like I thought mm. season one was, was pretty solid. And I was wondering, like, I, just because it's so low stakes... And yep. just because, you know, it's it's a very easy watch. I mean, the humor's not for everyone, and that's understandable. Um, but I wasn't sure how they would continue that in a way that made sense, right? Like, it needed to have some sort of progression while at mm-hmm. the same time, you know, maintaining all the things that the fans love. Uh, so I wasn't too sure. But I mean, I have to say, like, at the end of the day, despite a few, I mean, a few portions where it felt a bit messy, uh, in mm. terms of the storytelling, like overall, it's still a riot, right? Like there are plenty mm. of arcs. I think this season, which I found hilarious, uh, I do like the fact that we've gotten a fair bit more character development from characters that weren't as well developed last season. Yep, uh, Guillermo being one of them. Uh, yeah. and that that particular storyline was 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 really good. I think like I would continue to watch it just to see where Guillermo um ends up. You know, uh, other than, I don't have, really have that many complaints, you know, about mm. this. It was a very easy watch. Uh, it was very lighthearted. It continued to give us more information and build a bit more of the world out for us, uh, or rather the neighborhood out for us. Uh, yeah. And um, it, it has some pretty, like, in, it poses some interesting questions about vampire lore, you know, mm. especially about the, the ghost episode was particularly funny for me. Um mm. <clears throat> yeah. Yeah. So That's I mean, like, it was. Uh, it it delivered more of the same. I I feel. Uh, I don't think that they added that much to it, and I have no complaints about that. Yeah. Um, you know, but I'm also again curious, like, you know, going to like a season three. If there's a season three, I heard that um, uh, Jermaine Clement left the show. Is that right? Uh, yes. Yep. Yeah. So now with I mean, like Taika's not on, uh, not there. Um, mm-hmm. and then Jermaine's not there. I'm not really sure if they'll continue in the kind of same same vein that they have been with this. So mm-hmm. uh, we'll see where it goes. Uh, overall, I did enjoy it a, a great deal. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, you were saying something earlier, Chris. Uh, what, what did you want to point out? Um, for I I wanted to kind of point out like the different uh monsters that they had like um. Mm-hmm. Uh, in terms of like the expansion of the world, uh, yeah, I mean beyond uh, uh, werewolves from from last uh, last season, uh, and this, from the movie actually, yeah, yeah, yeah from, from the movie, uh, and no, they were also in season one. 
They were also in season one, yeah, yeah. yeah but they begin in in the movie. But they they introduce a whole lot of other supernatural creatures. This yeah, I I I was just I was just surprised. Like even Baba Duke <laughs> made an appearance during 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 the show. Uh, that was yeah. just that was just so left field. Like I had to do a double take. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um. Amazingly, like uh, actually, the I guess the overarching story of season two is is uh Guillermo finding out. Uh, at the end of season one, that he was descended from legendary vampire hunter Van Helsing, yeah, uh, and he's kind of torn between his devotion to Nandor and uh, unmist and his unmistakable unmistakable talents for slaying uh, vampires. <laughs> yeah, uh, I I think it's kind of a smart way to um, shake up the basic low stakes structure of it, even as Nandor for most of the season remains oblivious to Guillermo's power mm. um, amidst his usual idiocy. Mm-hmm. And I think the actor that plays uh, Guillermo Javi Guillen. Uh, that's a really good job of uh, playing the inner turmoil and the comedy bits. It feels a bit like The Office where you're working for an incompetent boss, that kind of thing. Oh my god, uh, every, every time he stares at the camera, I just want to... <laughs> I, I, I feel his pain. <laughs> I know, I know. We've all, we've all worked for bosses like that and we've all felt underappreciated in the workplace. This is just a bit heightened because he works uh, for a vampire and he knows that the promise of being turned into an immortal is sort of an empty one. Uh, I think that's really great. Um, some of my favorite episodes this season uh, were the Superb Owl Party that uh, oh. was also, oh. also a Super Bowl party. Um, but I think my favorite of all was the one where Mark Hamill guest starred in. Mm. Um, I thought that was really <laughs> brilliant because it introduced uh, Laszlo's uh, alter ego of a uh, regular human bartender, uh, Jackie Daytona. Uh, and then, <laughs> Jackie Daytona. <laughs> and then it sort of like swerved into uh, randomly into how they were all super invested in this local varsity volleyball <laughs> girls team and how they needed to make state. Uh, and <laughs> that was one of the more unpredictable punchlines because like I, I had no idea that this old age old vampire rivalry was going to go into this small town yeah. comedy skit about a volleyball team you know that's <laughs> that was really funny yeah that was yeah. uh what were some of your favorite episodes of uh of the season isa uh i i think oh man Col- colin's episode this season was great uh oh, it yeah, really well... really was that was like some next level stuff uh i didn't expect it i mean like i I, I thought they would probably revisit something like that, right? Um, but mm-hmm. just to see the extent of how powerful he can actually get when he's placed in the right place is it, pretty in- intense, uh, mm-hmm. you know? And, like, the whole idea of, like, his hair growing back and he's getting younger and all that, like, it's kind of like a throwback to, to Dracula that we, uh, we actually reviewed some time ago. Yep. Uh, the BBC one. Yeah, and so uh, I really, really enjoyed that. Uh, Superb Owl is definitely one of my favorites. <laughs> Superb Owl was just like, oh my god, the poor guy that they brainwashed. <laughs> I, I still think about him. <laughs> what did they call it? Brain scramblies. Yeah, the yeah. brain scramble. <laughs> like he had different levels for it. I I had to like pause and then rewatch his explanation of the different levels mm. of uh my my uh my top twisty curvy. <laughs> <laughs> Oh uh, uh, what about you, Chris? Did you have like uh, standout episodes for you? Yeah, I actually really enjoyed the episode when uh, baby vampire learned her learned how to be a vampire and learned her powers. Was that this season? Um, I I think baby vampire was just introduced in last season, but it came back again this season. Yeah, so yep. she 
that that one was that one stood out for me and also vampire orgy oh my god <laughs> vampire orgy really stood out to me i like baby vampire mainly because i saw the jealousy and guillermo speaking mm. out like that was the episode where he started speaking out a bit more against nandor like making yep. known his discontent with his own position yeah. uh that that really uh that's i really like that because it was so snarky like um and and as well as uh uh vampire orgy yeah watching the vampires just being unable to get by without their familiars like they did, didn't know how to do laundry uh their house was a mess uh etc was was really eye-opening and um Guillermo's own uh descent into becoming a familiar for this other vampire who is not quite a vampire yeah. is also quite funny as well uh. um i thought the premises for this season was a bit more creative than uh previous seasons uh-huh. uh, it was a bit wilder uh, but at the same time it was still low stakes which is kind of what i enjoy about it is a low stakes high concept sitcom mm-hmm. uh that is very like unpretentious and has this kind of dry kiwi humor that they maintained uh yes yeah, so overall like i i enjoyed it quite a bit guys um before you give your ratings um do you want to give your final thoughts uh, let's kick it off with uh, chris uh <clears throat> final thoughts on what we do in the shadow season 2 uh, yeah. i did um uh, not to give any spoilers but i did i was not very that much taken with the season finale um, mm, same. yeah yeah the last episode i felt it 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 was First off, it's predictable. Mm-hmm. Uh, second of all, the the ending didn't feel as uh big or celebrate uh as in like as as ornate as when the Vampire Council we first got introduced to the Vampire Council in the second episode, right for yep. season one. You know, yep. I thought it would be off that scale, but it wasn't. Mm-hmm. Uh, for some reason, maybe they just chose a really small theater <laughs> for vampire theater. So yeah, that's that, that. That that was my only gripe. Yeah. Uh, what about you, Isa? I mean, overall, I I like again, like I said, I don't really have that many complaints. There were just portions where some things work better than others. I think Chris is right in pointing out that the finale wasn't fantastic. Mm. Uh, there were quite a few laughs here and there, but outside of that, you know, it was. I felt like they didn't stick the landing for the season. Uh, yeah, 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 I agree. Um, okay, uh, so I guess like uh, for me, I thought it was it was pretty good. Um, it was a slight improvement over the first season, uh-huh. but yeah, it, it was um, kind of inconsistent here and there. There were certain episodes that fell below the standard that I kind of expected. I thought the the sperm stealing witches episode was um, pretty weak as well. Yeah. Mm, uh, yeah. The, the season finale was okay. Like, it wasn't bad. It was just okay. Yeah. Um, and also, I'd be remiss if I didn't point out in the premiere um, a great guest spot by Haley Joel Osman, uh, who was uh, just the most annoying familiar, and I hated him so oh much. Oh, my God. Oh, yeah. Uh, <laughs> yeah. I mean, I, I totally forgot. He was a pretty big guest. Uh, yeah. Oh, sorry. oh, yeah. I completely forgot about him. My goodness. I know, but what what a fucking annoying familiar. <laughs> yeah. I, I, hate, I hated him so much. And uh, even when he came back as a zombie, he actually became more entertaining then. But yeah, um, how would you how would you rate the season out of 10, Chris? Um, out of 10, I'll give it a 7.5. Uh, okay. Yeah, I'll give it a 7.5. Nice. Uh, what about you, Isa? I'm going to give it a 7 this season. 
Okay, yes, uh, I'll be rating it the same as Chris, uh, 7.5 out of 10, which is actually the same as we rated it uh, last season. So this is actually kind of a consistent show, oh. uh, good good yep. rating overall. Um, it kind of ranges between, a, it's a high rating, like 7.5 or 7 out of 10. It's, it's a pretty solid recommendation. Uh, we definitely recommend that if you haven't seen the movie or you haven't, if you have seen the movie and haven't seen a TV show like Chris uh, before I asked him to watch this, uh, this is definitely recommended and well worth your time because it's such a low time investment. Um, every season requires maybe about four to five hours. Yep. Uh, and it's easy to get through. It's breezy. You'll have fun with it. Maybe not the most mind-blowing, uh, structurally inventive comedy out there, but it is a really, really good comedy. Uh, yeah, uh, highly recommended season two, What We Do in the Shadows. You can find it on FX. Uh, next up, we'll, I want to talk about a little a super micro-budget indie film called uh, The Vast of Night. Uh, it's the debut uh, film by by director Andrew Patterson. Um, I think it is a, a stunning, sweeping, vintage sci-fi film. It's uh, it's set in the 1950s in New Mexico, mm -hmm. and it's kind of framed as an episode of the of a Twilight Zone esque show. Uh, it's an intimate period piece that uses that era's history of UFO phenomena and uh, Soviet paranoia to create uh, this this kind of riveting thriller unfolding in real time, uh, essentially over the course of a high school basketball game. Uh, the movie follows a young radio DJ named Everett and a switchboard operator named Faye. Uh, as the night progresses, Faye and Everett's knowledge of tape recorders and recordings becomes uh, significant when a strange noise begins appearing all over town, uh, appearing as distortions on uh, Faye's phone lines and on Everett's uh, radio station. Uh, so Everett and Faye team up to figure out the origin of the mysterious sound. Uh, this is essentially the very bare basics premise of the vast of night but the real beauty of the movie is in its execution i think mm -hmm. um chris you had a chance to uh, see this uh, what do you think about the vast of night I, I thought it was a very very <clears throat> very quaint a uh, period piece of mm -hmm. that particular era and it was there in the dialogue, the choice of words, the vernacular mm -hmm. that they were using, mm. um, all of that kind of evoked this uh, high school, small town uh, back in the 70s? Is it the 70s? Uh, 50s. 50s, uh, yeah. Yep. Uh, uh, it, that even with the switch spots and everything, I love it. It was, it was just such a very easy nighttime watch uh, for mm -hmm. me. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, what about you, Isa? Uh, it's it, uh, for the amount of money they were given to make this show. It is a beautiful movie, right? It's self-funded, actually. Like they weren't given anything; they made it themselves. Yeah. Oh, wow. Yeah. yeah. So I'm, yeah. I, with the kind of budget that they had, right? Like it's mm -hmm. really well shot. Uh, the look and feel of it is, uh, is is it feels very like um real, very authentic mm -hmm. for the timepiece itself. Like I think the costuming and the set design and, and all the kind of like old tech that they had available uh, in that like it looks uh, very much like uh, a, a period from uh, a, a piece from that period um, I really think that Andrew Patterson has a lot of chops for someone who's doing this for the first time uh, yeah. and I'm, I'm excited to see what he does next I didn't like I, I went into this without uh, you know, finding out about the movie and all of that and reading anything else. So after I was done watching and I find out that it's his first time directing a feature like film, uh, mm -hmm. and just kind of like the some some of the strange things they did to to get the shots that they got, 
mm-hmm. was really quite fascinating, you know, as a like kind of just trivia after the fact. Um, and quite taken by how tight most of the movie was. Uh, in mm-hmm. terms of its pacing, I mean, it's fairly dialogue heavy, and there isn't as much a- action as one would expect from, uh, when someone tells you the kind of the premise of the story. Uh, yep. but all of that feels very natural, and um, I think the two, uh, main protagonists did a really really good job. I can't remember their names at the moment. Um, Sarah McCormick and Three. Jake Horowitz. Yeah, like the two the two oh, main actors. actors. Yeah. Yep. I think they did a yeah. really really good job. Yeah. Yeah, um, I think uh, Andrew Patterson is is kind of a, a maestro of the camera. Uh, he does a lot with um, absolutely nothing. There's no, uh, there's barely any CG. There's yep. barely any money in it. Um, from long, slow, steady tracking shots following Everett and Faye uh, as they kind of just walk and talk uh, to locked off, perfectly still single takes of just extremely long monologues that just close up on the actors' faces. Um, the camera work has you on the edge of your seat and it will memorize, uh, mesmerize you. Mm-hmm. Um, one scene in particular, um, a single tracking shot that happens in the middle of the film that goes on for, I think, 10 minutes as the camera races all over town, in and out of buildings, uh, feels almost impossible. Um, it, is, <laughs> it is a ridiculous shot. I have no idea how they did it. Uh, they didn't use CG for that. Like I'm sure, because it looks practical. Um, uh, Chris, we 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 kind of talked about this shot yesterday. Like, uh, could yeah, you, could, could could you like uh speak a bit more about uh what you thought about that shot? Um, I think uh when I was uh watching that, I was kind of like, there's no dolly, there are no tracks. I for an instance, I actually thought that the person who was shooting this shot was on a skateboard holding a camera with a weight in order to keep. To keep the shot steady, uh, the way it it traversed the whole entire place made the town feel much larger. Mm-hmm. Like mm-hmm. you, you, you could sense the you could sense the distance of of which the characters were running to and fro, and even the scale. I think the scale was very important uh, mm-hmm. for uh, an our sense of the of the scale of the town, because then it made sense why some particular uh where let's say where Faye was at in terms uh at the switchboard uh mm-hmm. it made sense that she seemed so isolated that 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 was actually the point in the movie when I was watching where I felt a creeping sense of fear and suspense because mm-hmm. it was this young girl it was the dead of the night uh she just took on the shift and she is encountering this sound over the switchboard and people are dropping off in terms mm-hmm. of being con- being able to be contacted. Uh, that really kind of increased the suspense for me at a point. That's quite memorable for me. Yeah, yeah same here. Um, Isa, do you know which shot we're talking about? Yeah, so I didn't... Uh, I was trying to figure out how they did it. So I went and do a bit of searching. Um, mm-hmm. Did you guys read anything about it? Nope. Uh, yes, uh, I watched the making of. So, uh, so, yeah, right. Yeah, okay. So I, I, I don't know if we watched the same make, uh, making of clip. Um, mm-hmm. But hit you want to like? Uh, are we gonna tell people or should they? Just no, no, no. Just preserve the mystery. Don't, don't. Yeah, yeah. Okay, okay. Right. Yeah. So yeah. I, I, when I found out, I was just like, really? Are you serious? Mm-hmm. Uh, but still, like to get a shot like that is still is still quite a feat. I have to say, it, it's quite something. 
I know it's a what amazing craft in filmmaking. Yeah. Um. At at a certain point, like we talked about the camera work. Uh. Sometimes the film does revert to a square black and white format to remind us that we're supposedly watching uh an episode of an anthology show called The Paradox Theater. Um. At other times, our leads are back in the studio and taking calls to discuss the strange sound and. The camera just cuts to black, uh, relying entirely on voice acting, yeah. which kind of harkens back to the radio drama roots of uh, the movie's inspiration, which is War of the Worlds. Uh, I think mm-hmm. War of the Worlds is, is the big uh, inspiration point for, for the mood of this film. Uh-huh. Uh, the radio station they work for is called WOTW. Uh, I think it's an explicit yeah. reference to War of the Worlds. Yeah. Uh, yeah, dynamic camera work, amazing dialogue, uh, wonderful acting that kind of drives the, the tension. Of the film, and I think that the two leads they they kind of carry the movie mm. with their fifties personas, you know, desperately running around trying to figure out things. And actually, Everett was very charming in this film. Was so yeah. charming, yeah. even from the get go, from the first, from from hearing how he kind of commanded like everybody in the in that basketball court. Yeah. Uh, in mm-hmm. the beginning, yeah, very charming. The characterization is great. I, I do agree. Um, I said, like, what do you think about the various different people that uh, Everett and Faye went around town uh, talking to? I thought, like, the different people and the different stories added um, maybe not plot elements, but creepy elements to it. It added to the tension. Uh, like, the, the woman that they talked to at the end, for example, like, yep. gave, uh, gave me the chills. Uh, what, what, what do you think about uh, all the various characters in the film? Uh, it, okay, it's fascinating that... Um how they it, it's part of the world build, uh, world building right like you you come across this town right and you get a gist of what the setting is like just before everything kind of happens and then as they go around interviewing people in their cars these families and the, uh, the, these members of the the town are on on face little tape recorder right like you slowly kind of build up uh what the town's spirit is kind of like and you you on the one hand, you kind of get to know the people, but on the other hand, you also realize there's a lot of vacancy in in that space, right? Like you, yep. um, you're not quite sure. You know, you know, there's a town in New Mexico. You know, it's a kind of out in the boondocks and all of that, right? But and it's filled with people, but you're not really quite sure what kind of people. Like they seem a bit caricature-ish. Uh, for most of the time, um, you know, and then of course, as the different interviews go on, and when things eventually do happen, right? Of course, you have to interview with Billy, uh, mm-hmm. with such a compelling voice acting, I have to say. Uh, mm-hmm. and then later on, um, their in-person interview with Mabel, which I have to say, I felt went a tad longer than I wanted it to be. I kind of drifted; my attention kind of drifted in the in the middle of that, and then I had to like rewind and rewatch the whole thing. Uh, you know, but it plays into a lot of I I think the um kind of uh the conspiracies of the time right that is taking place in the nineteen fifties uh you know mm. with uh just before Area Fifty One and and with UFO sightings and all these like secret military things that are going on and all the Cold War stuff yeah, yeah. um and you know it spoke to that kind of era uh of 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 all movies that cover that particular era um mm. is there something in particular that that you felt um, added to the creepiness of of uh, the the show in general in the interview. I think what was great about the show in general is what I like about Hitchcock in that a lot of the stuff that they 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 don't show. Uh-huh. You know, like it's not CG heavy. They don't show scary aliens. They yeah. don't show scary monsters. You just have this sense of disquiet. Uh, the sense of uh, tenseness uh, that just follows you around as you wonder what it could be, yeah. uh, and it's the it's the wondering your imagination that it uh, that it stokes. It's 
really good filmmaking and harkens back to old radio dramas and old films. Yeah. Uh, and and plus there's this kind of like sweet undercurrents of of um, classical Americana uh-huh. about young characters and their young ambition and young love and hopes for the future. Uh, yeah, th- those are the, the kind of stuff that I really liked about uh, the yeah. film. Uh, um, be- before I guess we get to our, our ratings, do you have any like concluding thoughts, Chris? Uh, yeah, uh, I just want to say that uh, one of the stand-up moments to, for me for the film was when Billy revealed that he was African-American, that, mm-hmm. that all of the characters who ended up have going on these secret missions were all African-American, and yep. how their voice, and he said it quite, there was a, uh, I'm, I think I'm misquoting him, like he said, like, uh, we are the voices, uh, you I need to speak up right now because uh, you don't usually hear from us. And I thought that was yes. so timely uh, mm-hmm. in, that, in that particular monologue that, uh, that he had. And mm-hmm. it then struck me that actually I didn't see any African-American actors in the film. It is an accurate representation of the 50s. Yeah. Yep. yeah. So uh, it, it was, uh, it, kind of, it, it, it kind of pushed, made me jump uh, back a bit and kind of break my fourth wall because I then started going like, okay, I'm too deep into the film. Let me come out of it again because I think uh, the Black Lives Matter movement uh, mm. kind of has changed my lens in a, in a manner. Definitely. I mean, Black Lives Matter is, a lot of people might say it, it kind of stems from the 2014 killing of Eric Garner and then most recently George Floyd, of course. But Black Lives Matter to black people has been around for 400 years. Um, it's been around in the, in the 1800s, in the 1950s, during Jim Crow, uh, till now. So it's, it's always been prevalent to them and it's important to have uh, their voices heard um, in this time period and what it was like for them. I think kind of the undercurrent of the film also is about insignificant people who are irrevocably changed uh, by con- by big things beyond their comprehen- comprehension, like whether they're black or whether they're female. Mm-hmm. Um, no one's ever bothered to listen to them before. And mm-hmm. uh, what Faye and Everett is doing is actually listening to their stories uh, and giving them weight. Yeah. Uh, what about you, Aisa? Do you have like, concluding thoughts? Uh, okay, so I watched the majority of this movie with my headphones on. Uh, oh, okay. And... Um... I have to say that the the quality of the sound just throughout the film, right, in terms of the sound design, uh, when you're talking on the radio, when you're talking to people, or even like the fidelity of the actual recordings themselves that they're digging through is mm-hmm. really good, right? It oh. really sounds like tape. It really sounds like radio, uh, at least on my headphones, right? And I didn't expect that. Uh, and I was quite surprised by it. And I think like uh, what was interesting is that when they finally get... Uh, um, the the tapes from the library, right? Yes. And, and they're yeah. listening to that and he goes like, oh, it's even clearer. And I was just like, is it really clearer? Isn't it just the <laughs> same thing? So I go yeah. back, right? And then I listen to the original one that's through the telephone uh, that mm-hmm. Faye picks up and then I, I listen to the one that um, he plays through the radio through Faye's thing. And I, they're different. Like, they actually sound different. Uh, and it's because of the medium that they're kind of going through, right? The fact that it's routed through the telephone and it's routed through the radio and then you can actually get the tape thing where the characters themselves are listening to it, which is the highest form of fidelity that they're going to get at that point in time. And yep. it, it kind of shocked me just how much like attention. That isn't something that people are really going to pay attention to, you know? And the only reason I gave it any sort of attention it was because I could I could kind of tell on my headphones. I was just like, oh, wait, wait, wait a minute. 
Um, so that just caught me by surprise, and I appreciate that. I really do. Uh, yeah. yeah. Uh, just like a short uh, aside. Uh, any other concluding thoughts before you give your your rating? Uh, no. Uh, I I think it's 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 a good movie. Uh, all in all, I have to say for the for a self funded thing, um, mm-hmm. and just like for for first outing for Andrew Patterson, uh, mm-hmm. I really enjoyed it. I I did. Um, at the end of it, I did feel come away feeling like I wanted more. But again, you know, you gotta remind yourself that it's framed as an episode of of Paradox Theater. So, uh, I'm looking forward to see what Andrew Patterson does again. And like, honestly, if Paradox Theater was a series, I would watch it like easily. Oh, def- for, for yeah, sure. definitely for sure. Definitely, yeah. Um, I think it's it's uh, impressive to see such storytelling finesse, sophisticated camera work, uh, and filmmaking prowess and and experimental narrative and and great sound design uh come from from a newcomer essentially yeah. uh, and to have all this kind of ambitious gambits mostly work is a uh, on, on on an independent film budget no less uh is quite a feat uh which is why i kind of am impressed with this movie a lot like i do agree that i think the ending was kind of a letdown a bit yeah uh but it doesn't really matter to me like, because you know um like you said it is framed as an episode of uh, of a Twilight Zone-esque show and it does end in the same way that many Twilight Zone-esque yeah. episodes end. Uh, so I get what they were going for and given the constraints that they were given, uh, wonderful stuff. Um, I think I'm giving this an 8 out of 10. Uh, what about you, Chris? Um, 8. Same. Nice. Yep. Nice. I uh, an 8 for me too. The same. That's awesome. Uh, of course, uh, The Vast of Night is available right now on Amazon Prime. If you have a subscription, go ahead. If not, you can also rent it, I think, for three bucks. Very cheap. Uh, do try to give An- Andrew Patterson your money. He he deserves it. And so he can <laughs> make bigger budget films in yeah. the future. Yep, yep. Uh, I think uh, that's it for Chris's uh, portion of this episode. Thanks again for coming on, Chris. Thank you for inviting me. I love the stuff you always recommend. Yeah, no problem. We will have you back in in the coming months, uh, for sure. Uh, okay. Uh, you follow Dark Matter Theatrics on social media on Facebook if you haven't. Uh, Chris is a playwright on that, and uh, I guess as soon as the COVID thing is over, they'll be up and running once again. Yeah. Uh, awesome, Chris. Uh, thanks so much. Thank you. Thank, Thank you guys you. so much. Bye. All right. Bye. 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 We will be talking about Legends of Tomorrow now. Um, and if you're wondering why our introduction song was a uh, Cisco Stong song, uh, you must not have <laughs> you must not have seen the season finale of the Legends of Tomorrow. <laughs> so I I would not spoil too much about it to you. But uh, let's just say like a um, early two thousands uh, R and B legend Cisco plays a big part in the finale randomly. Oh, yeah. Uh, yeah. But yeah, um, is is there any show in the world having more fun with itself than Legends of Tomorrow right now? Um, I say none. Uh, for, the, <laughs> for the last, I think, four to five years, Legends has uh, kind of pound for pound been the most uh, joyous slice of uh, what the fuckery uh, in this or any timeline. Uh, <laughs> and this season picks up from Arrow versus uh, Big Crisis on Infinite Earths crossover. Uh, the yep. legends immediately jump back into their own time travel problems when uh, Astra releases the souls of history's most notorious villains from hell, um, from Rasputin to Bugsy Siegel to Genghis Khan to even Damien Dark. Uh, the legends are forced to jump around the timeline to uh, re-kill all of these uh, reanimated villains. Uh, plus, uh, Mick has a daughter because he went back in time and had sex with his high school sweetheart. Uh, Nora is a fairy godmother. Uh, Ray leaves the team to marry her 
third and there's so much more and that's just kind of from the first half of the season yeah um <laughs> and and the second half kind of switches to a different story where uh, it revolves around charlie who turns out to be one of the fates from ancient Greek mythology, uh, and she's hidden the loom of fate from her sisters in order to give humanity agency over their destiny. Uh, man, what a what a fun, uh, wild, uh, really audaciously inventive season of Legends Tomorrow. Once it's again, it's crazy how much they packed into this season. Yeah, I don't think we've ever gotten this many kind of arcs in a single season of Legends. Mm-hmm. Yeah, uh, it's just like uh, I. Watching through watching through the entire season, and I I pretty much did it in one sitting, more or less. Yep. Uh, it was it was a bit. It felt like it could have gotten a bit much, but it was so fun overall that I didn't really care. Yeah, a hundred percent. I think that like the most important thing, uh, to keep in mind is that it is a, a comedy show, and it is genuinely hilarious. Uh, when it wants to be, it can also be very heartfelt. Uh, yep. in, in addition to being lighthearted, I think of all of the Arrowverse shows, you know. Um, Legends Tomorrow can be silly and self-referential, self-referential without uh, getting lost in the snarkiness that, say, like Deadpool is, right? Which attempts yep. comedy as well. Um, from its incredible, like, mockumentary uh, premiere episode where we see uh, <laughs> Rasputin is kind of a reality TV whore um, to a whole action set piece of uh, Genghis Khan and his army trying to take over Hong Kong with kick scooters. Uh, <laughs> it's, uh, and, and the episode was wonderfully titled Mortal Kanbat, by the way. Um, you know, there is uh, Ava's uh, amazingly drunk uh, karaoke of That Girl yeah. Is Poison from 1930s uh, Chicago. Uh, the episode where William Shakespeare turned Romeo and Juliet into a superhero epic called Romeo versus Juliet, The oh, Dawn really? of Justice. Um, yeah, there's even like a sweet story that kind of redeems Damien Dark by putting him inside a Mr. Rogers episode. Uh, yeah. Or how about, you know, Cisco once again uh, performing a Tom Song, Tong Song as the soundtrack to the season's climactic battle. This show has like too many great moments to, to, to rank or to list. And I'm just yeah. like listing them on the, on the top of my head and they're all pure joy. They can do anything. Uh, they had even a, a crossover with Supernatural. Um, yeah. There is an alternate influencer version of Zari, who is just so fucking funny. I think uh, Tala Ash absolutely kills it in her new role, by the way. He's, she is so hilarious yeah. as uh, influencer Zari. Um, like, what, 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 what do you think about all the different threads of, of the season and, and how fun it was? Uh, it's... Okay, so there's a lot going on, right? I think like we've come to expect a lot of what goes on from the legends itself. So it wasn't messy, yeah. In a lot of ways that uh, shows of of that it can can kind of get messy, right? Mm. Um, I think like we followed this the main kind of like core cast of these guys for a while now. Uh, I am a bit sad to lose to lose Raymond, um, mm. and uh, that was uh, some really like solid like emotional notes that they hit there, and I love it whenever they kind of like dip out of that uh dip out of the comedy yep. you know just to um kind of evaluate some of the more human connections in the show itself uh but it was it was a lot you know it was such a strange ride and it's kind of difficult to see how they would probably like top that with any more mm-hmm. you know um uh, but yeah i had a lot of fun i think like being able to kind of like um uh, tie up a couple of loose ends I think like having John Constantine on as he has been for the last two seasons mm-hmm. uh, is, is is a joy right like he brings to the table that uh, something that Legends didn't have prior to that like with the cynicism and the quick witticisms that he, he, he throws around all the time yeah. uh, his relationship with Astra and just how he's a lot more 
somber, I guess, than the rest of the cast in general. You mm-hmm. know? Um, the fact that, you know, Sarah has kind of like found her place as captain. Mm. Uh, and she she realizes, I think, in a very meta sort of way, that this is the way things work, right? Like you constantly find her explaining how <laughs> the legends work to, yep. to Ava, who who's new, right? Uh, and and just kind of at her wit's end as to what to do most of the time, and just like ah, just let it be, you know, it'll work out and all of that. And and I love that, you know, like she's kind of um gone from like having to replace Rip and like you know just coming to her own as captain, and then now she's just kind of like ah, whatever, you know, we'll deal with it. Uh, you know, and even like later on when when she she gets like foresight and all of that, like it all kind of plays into like a great sort of character arc over the seasons. Um, that I really do quite enjoy seeing, you know, um, the kind of like friendship that they have and all of that. Um, for me, uh, having multiple versions of of Azari uh, is fantastic. Yeah, I think especially in the tail end when you get to see like how different the characters she has to play mm-hmm. are. You know, and how they they have to interact with each other. I, I was just like, well, damn, like girls got some chops. Um, the Shakespeare episode is a particular standout one for me, just to have them doing Romeo and Juliet, like proper, you know, iambic pentameter and all of that, and and delivering those lines in. And these are great actors, like having the time of their lives, you know, and that's how it feels like, um, <clears throat> throughout the entire season, especially this one. Yeah, I mean, like the the show is is frequently lighthearted. They take almost nothing seriously, but but when the show wants you to feel something and get serious, you definitely feel it. You know, um, from uh Ray and Nora's wedding, uh, to yeah. Nate's uh sadness that his uh, BFF Ray is uh leaving the team, to Sarah and Ava's uh romance, to Mick and his daughter, to the two Zaris, to even a new character um in Beirut and his life and death. Uh, yeah. and, and the beats that are meant to kick you, kick you harder because we've had so much fun with all of them, you know. And, yeah. and, and Legends is kind of like at the point where the writers are, are, try, are willing to try every ludicrous idea that crosses their mind. Uh, <laughs> and, and they kind of manage to make everything land, uh, which is kind of a miracle in of itself. Yeah. And, and it, hell, yeah. even in the finale, they did, uh, I, think, I think they did Westworld Season 3 better than Westworld did with uh, mm-hmm. the Doom of Fate inspiring a much more fun take on the whole free will versus uh, chaos debates. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, like, it was, it, was, uh, it, it was so many things kind of at one time, right? When we hit into that arc, when they finally come back, you know, uh, with the Watchers and all of that, it was like Westworld meets uh, Black Mirror, mm-hmm. you know, with the legends, like, just doing their own kind of take silly take on it oh, I, I loved it it was really really solid yeah man um, of all the episodes uh, this season I think the episode that, that stands out for me uh, the highlights is uh, where the fates have created an, an, an Orwellian 1984-esque future where free will yep. is gone and the legends are stuck in a various TV universes uh, which gives them um, a great opportunity to do spot on parodies of Friends <laughs> uh, Downton Abbey <laughs> Uh, Star Trek the original series, uh, Mr. Rogers' Neighborhood once again. Uh, and it was uh, a blast and, and kind of just as awesome as uh, last season's uh, Legends of Tumau Meow episode. Um, <laughs> uh, brilliant stuff. I mean, uh, I'm, I think, one of the few people who are actually big fans of all three shows that they kind of parodied, Friends, Downton Abbey, and Star Trek. And, mm-hmm. and I, I kind of noticed a lot of they, that they 
uh, nailed all of the downtown abbeyisms and and the Star Trek original seriesisms. You know, like they knew those shows, uh, uh, yeah. and, and the, the parodies were were really great. Uh, they, uh, like, what do you think about the episode? And do you have your own uh, highlight? Oh, um, wow! There's just so many. Mm. Damn. Uh, I mean, I really enjoyed that episode. Uh, I think it was a very kind of clever way to get around the whole uh, big question, right? Like, just the episode before, you're not really sure, you know, you're at the point in time whereby you know that the season isn't up yet, but they've lost to the fates. Yep. And um, you you kind of question, like, how is Clotho just going to kind of, like, finagle her way through this, you know? And it ends up being, you know, a bit of a compromise on her part, I think. Mm-hmm. Uh, but it's a very inventive way of going about it for sure uh, I think just like Mona and Gary <laughs> uh, you know trying to like bust them out of this like whole uh, a whole TV universe thing is pretty hilarious uh, and I mean the Friends the, uh, from, I, I don't watch Downton Abbey so I can't speak to that mm-hmm. right the Friends one and, and Star Trip oh man I love those I especially love Mick S <laughs> Khan <laughs> It's so funny. Um, uh, yeah, it 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 really just uh, and, and the fact that Cloto at the end of the day said, "I gave you everything you wanted," right? Mm. When we were, they were sitting around, they were discussing the things that they wanted. Yep. Um, and she delivers all of that. I didn't expect her to deliver them in the form of these three particular shows. <laughs> uh, that being said, I don't know per se if uh, Astra actually gets a, a happy childhood because <laughs> uh, we don't see any of that. That's true. Um, but. Yeah, I mean, that definitely is one of the standout episodes just because of how bold it is, I think, mm-hmm. um, in the way that they're kind of telling stuff. Uh, the outside of the TV universe, um, the entire kind of uh, Orwellian dystopia that, that um, the characters find themselves in, or at least Mona and Gary find themselves in, is, is fascinating, I think, um, to kind of work that kind of uh, imagery of a dystopia and to tie it to something that is very fundamentally Greek myth, right? Yeah. A very fundamental kind of Greek myth. It's kind of mind-blowing, you yeah. know? Uh, the, and the fact that, you know, at the end of the day, if you you are a voice of dissent even in the slightest, right? You can get your thread cut, which is is insane. Like, I, uh, it, it, I never thought I would ever see those two things merged into mm-hmm. a single kind of, like, entity. And it's, it's, it's crazy how a show like Legends that I think the majority of people who in, who have come across it or and I, or maybe follow it just casually, mm-hmm. um, you would dismiss <laughs> something uh, of that. It's a high, it's pretty high concept, right? Yeah. Um, to to come across a show like Legends and I love it. I, I love it because of that. Like even despite the fact that it's silly, it's funny, and they just lean into it so much of the time. There's some very genuine human moments. And there are these moments where just the concepts that they're playing around with is pretty mind-blowing. Yeah. Um, one of my favorites, actually, like outside of that one also, is when they go to, uh, they travel to Hudson University uh, and they battle <laughs> the Greek god Dionysus in a, in a Fred, oh. Fred versus sorority uh, contest. Um, and that was pretty intensely funny. Uh, and it was, yeah. it was so ridiculous, especially with Nate just falling head over heels over, over Dionysus. Uh, yeah. And everything, even down to the beer pong finale where uh, um, Sarah uses her powers to beat him. Uh, it's insane. I, I even like the formation of the sorority and the little uh, video that they did. Um, yeah. It, it's kind of just like this small encapsulation of what I love about Legends. Yeah, yeah. I mean, they don't, they don't forget the fact that, uh, despite the fact they're going out, they... 
Okay, for that for me was just how like the sorority was meant to be a place for outcasts and the legends have always been mm. right like from the very very beginning when Rip forms them right it's all about the fact that no one is gonna miss you yeah yeah, right? yeah. Uh, uh, they, they, never, and, they never fit into their own shows yeah, e- yeah exactly and then for them to kind of bring that all the way into like this college uh, you know a college scene and, and, and form a story around that idea of, of having those rejects I, I, I think like it, was, it, it felt good right just to kind of see them follow through with that mm-hmm. all the way to something that very honestly if they didn't do it I would have been oh you know whatever yeah um, but the fact that they've been so consistent on delivering the fa- um, this kind of threat all the way from season one until now uh, I, I gotta give it to the writers man Oh like, yeah, I, I don't know how they come up with this shit. Um, one hundred percent. Um, in in terms of like, uh, do you have any like final thoughts before you give your rating? Uh, I I had a wild ride. I don't know if they can keep the density that they've done this season. Yeah. Uh, that's just kind of my main thing because I there's so many times I just like is the season done yet? No, it's not done yet. You know, I still got like five episodes left. Mm-hmm. Uh, and um. Uh yeah, I'm not sure if if that's something that they can do consistently, and I I hope they do. Mm. Uh, you know, just because like it, they they are the only kind of like DC <laughs> franchise right now that's delivering anything. Well, no, there's Harley Quinn as well, but like yeah. that's that's like a completely different thing. Different universe. Uh, yeah. Yeah. So for for live action DC stuff, right? Right yeah. now, that's the best that we're getting, and I hope they continue to 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 keep it up. Yeah, um, it's a it's a show that I, I treasure a lot, and I think the reason they're throwing everything at the wall is the kind of constant threat of cancellation being the yeah. most low rated Arrowverse show. So you know, like every season is could this be it? Could this be it? Let's throw as many ideas as possible at, at the wall and see if it sticks. Thankfully, um, all of them do, as yeah. ludicrous as they are, and and that's why I kind of treasure the show. It's it's the underdog that I root for all the time. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think yeah. it's a it's a eight point five out of ten season for me. Oh yeah, it's a eight eight of ten for me for sure. Nice. Um, right at the end of uh, Legends of Tomorrow, Sarah gets kidnapped uh, by aliens, abducted, uh, which I think is gonna tie all the way back to season one, episode one, where the very reason that Rip recruits the team is because in the future there will be an alien invasion by the Tenagarians, which has never happened yet. Yeah. It's something that it would they introduced in the pilot episode that they've never paid off, and I think they're gonna pay it off next season. Oh wow! Damn. Damn, I, that didn't occur to me at all. Yeah, didn't occur to me at all. Sure, sure, like, sure. Let's do it. Let's do it. I mean, like, I yeah. So we is is Rip definitively gone? Uh, probably, probably or, or maybe he might come back for this Tanagarian threat. Since that is the entire reason that the legends was formed. Considering yeah. Rip was saying in the future the world ends via Tanagarian invasion, yeah. uh, the show never actually showed us that uh they yep. just went off on different random things uh, <laughs> and now we're back to the season one threat that they, they kind of promise and they're going to fulfill uh i think it's a great idea if if the next season is indeed the final season yeah that would be interesting uh, for them to just kind of tie everything up it's been such a ride mm-hmm. you know just overall and all the places they've been and all the people they've met and all the different <laughs> things they've screwed up along the way Oh yeah, I mean, oh, but, but in in the most fun way possible. Uh, the only live action show that I can kind of like semi compare to it is kind of Doom Patrol. Uh, mm. in 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 that vein, but I think Legends has just done it 
for longer and more consistently. Uh, that's yeah. why I really, really love this show. And I think it's the best uh, live-action superhero show uh, out there right now. Uh, but switching from live-action to animated, uh, let's talk about the second season of uh, Kipo and the Age of Wonder Beasts, uh, which burst onto the scene earlier this year, actually. We did a review. Uh, yeah. The animated series delivered, you know, some action-packed adventures and some truly supportive friend and familial relationships and, and one of the most bumping soundtracks we've heard since Spider-Verse. Oh, man. Yeah. Uh, we, were, we were, like, a pretty solid. Uh, we solidly enjoyed the first season. We were, we were fans. And I'm kind of happy to say that in season two, those highlights continue with another batch of you know, hyper-color, hyper-active episodes. Yeah. Um, and if, in case you haven't seen Kipo, let me just, like, give you a little uh, quick reminder about what it is it is set in a vibrant future where humans live in underground cities and animals have gained sentience grown in size and taken over the surface uh we follow a lost girl who falls in love with uh the strange world of giant bugs and talking cats and and uh following the season one finale uh apparently uh her father and her community have been kidnapped and season two kind of follows her journey to rescue them um i have seen uh season two as well and and SS Isa, uh, what do you think about season two? Does it, does it live up to the potential of season one? Uh, yeah, I I think it definitely does. Like we got a fair bit of like world building and, and character development in, in in season one. A lot of that gets paid off in season two. Mm. Uh, and you know the willingness to go at depth to for some of the characters is pretty fascinating. Like Scalamane and the whole Hugo storyline that we go through, and mm-hmm. uh, like I really kind of enjoyed that. Like for them to. It, it could have been very easy to play him off as just kind of a villain, right? But, you know, it, we end up being a bit more sympathetic uh, towards his cause and there are a few f- uh, about faces here and there. Uh, and, like, it really just... Uh, it, it, I think they stuck it, you know, for, for season two. I, I did feel like season one, they could have done a fair bit more, but I, I can see, like, how it, it's led up to what they did in season two. Um, on the music side of things, I have to say, like the music is consistently amazing, mm-hmm. right? The fucking um, the cheese, the cheese, song? The, go- the goat song is the like, goat still, still in my head. Yeah, is a banger. Like yeah. I would, I would, I would do a remix on that, and I would play at a club just because, like, yeah. it's so good. <laughs> it is so good. And um, the props to the guys who are doing music for mm. this series because, like, so many of it is is original stuff, and it's 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 like it's there's got a lot of solid bops you know and it's always right tonally uh, and they use it very very well within within the context of the story yeah um i think season two kind of has kind of the same creative freedom to explore uh quote-unquote taboo topics in children's animation which isn't taboo yep. anymore uh like yep. burgeoning same-sex relationships in in a uh-huh. very positive manner uh mm-hmm. Season 2 is a bit different from Season 1 in a sense that it is a bit more linear in that we yeah. kind of understand what the Kipo world is already. So there aren't as many surprises in that sense. Like the world is no longer this, oh wow, what a wonderful world. Like I, I'm firmly entrenched in the world. I know what it is. So in yeah. that sense, it's a bit more predictable uh, in, just in a way that I'm more familiar with it. But mm. that's not to say that the episodes are boring. Um, no. they're, they're great new takes on you know goat societies, otters, <laughs> crayfish, and even fungus. Um... I think anytime all the introductory setup is done and you get into it, uh, season two is when, you know, a lot of shows in season two, you kind of struggle to keep things fresh. Uh, but yep. I think Kipo does that really well. It does keep it fresh with uh, new characters, plots, uh, changing yeah. alli- allegiances, you know, and some returning familiar faces. Uh, 
yeah, I, I think it unveils the Kipo mythology um, quite well and also doubles yep. down on its uh, social commentary uh, in, in terms of the mutes versus humans conflict as well. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, it's just... Yeah, I, I don't think... Um, after seeing season one, I don't, I didn't expect it to go where it's gone right now. Mm. You know, like there is a fair bit of like social issues that they're trying to like talk about and all of that above and beyond, um, you what you would expect from a kind of like dystopian setting, um, that that uh, season one set up. Mm. Yeah. Um. Oh, all in all, I really, really did enjoy. Same, yeah. Season two, yeah. I'm, I'm curious to see where they go. I, I, I really am. Like, I'm, I'm looking forward to season three. If they're going to continue to give us like fairly interesting twists and turns, mm-hmm. you know, introducing like a whole new slate of characters, some pretty late into the game as well, mm-hmm. um, with surprising results. I, I, I want to see how this plays out. You know, um, and I'm gonna watch just for the music, man. Like seriously. <laughs> I agree. It's it's a, it's a really solid kids cartoon. The cast, I think, does a fantastic job of bringing the colorful characters to life, and they're even better when they're all singing along. Uh, the yeah. music really does heighten the fun and the vibrant scenes. Yep. Um, I think it is like um, perhaps still not at the level of say Adventure Time or Steven Universe nope. or Infinity no, no. Train or or later or later era Shira, uh, but it it has the potential to get there someday because I think even Shira at this point in time, uh, we kind of didn't see. Yeah, yeah, that yeah. potential yet, but it, it can, it can get there one day, la. So I think yeah, for season two, really solid, just just solid, but like not great. Yeah, I mean, like it's it's not. Yeah, it hasn't reached the point of being like kind of transcendent as 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 we spoke about like later Irashira or even like Steven Universe was from from the very start, right? Um, but plenty of potential there more so than I had gave Shira credit for in the first two seasons you know yeah um, so yeah let's see where this goes um, it's a 7 out of 10 for me what about you it's a 7 out of 10 for me too nice yeah solid uh, pretty pretty solid recommendation I think you should definitely be keeping up with Kipo because I think it's going to end up in the future in seasons 3, 4, 5 uh, however long it goes to be a special show has yep. all, all, the, all the raw ingredients for it I would say yep. uh, next definitely. up we'll dive into a little section called Quick Hits, where I talk about the various shows and films and all of that that uh, my co-host hasn't had time to see or maybe has seen a bit. If you have seen a bit of it, feel free to jump in on, on any of these topics. Mm-hmm. Uh, first of all, uh, first of all um, I want to talk about the spin-off to Penny Dreadful. It's called Penny Dreadful City of Angels. Uh-huh. Uh, Penny Dreadful. I, have you ever seen the original show, Penny Dreadful? Yes, I watched it. I followed most of it, in fact. I think I only dropped off at the last, last season. The third season, okay. Yeah. Uh, so yeah. this time, Penny Dreadful goes from the gothic monsters of 19th century Victorian London to kind of the uh-huh. glamour and horror of 1930s Los Angeles, uh, hence uh, City of Angels, uh, his, its subtitle. Uh, it's essentially a supernatural spin on California noir, uh, and creator mm-hmm. John Logan has found uh, a new setting and palette to explore Penny Dreadful's uh, favorite themes, in particular the demonization of other. Um, yeah. This new story stars uh, Natalie Dormer as a shape-shifting demon and agent of chaos named, named Magda, who is intent on bringing out uh, humanity's worst instincts. Uh, she's a mm-hmm. temptress. Uh, in, in many forms, you know, whispering in ears. Uh, she offers uh, humans the dreams that will ultimately cause their ruin. Uh, but although Magda is kind of the centerpiece of the story and, and gives Natalie Dormer ample opportunity to the, display her range in a variety of characters, uh, the main character is actually a, a guy named Diego Vega, 
who is uh, LAPD's uh, first Latino detective. Uh, oh. He doesn't just face uh, racism within the force. He is also caught between the racial divide of his people and the institution he has chosen to represent. Uh, not only that, on his very first day on the job, he's assigned to a grisly, ritualistic murder of a rich white family from Beverly Hills. Uh, they, appeared, they appear to have been murdered in sacrifice to a Mexican god of death called Santa Muerte, uh, who is actually uh, Magda's uh, sister, um, the, the demon sister uh, in, in this canon. Uh, all of this is connected to the construction of uh, something called the Arroyo Seco Parkway. It is a new highway that will cut mm -hmm. through and bulldoze uh, Mexican-American neighborhoods, uh, destroying their homes and businesses. Uh, this sparks kind of um, uh, uh, an all-out race war in, in LA at the timeline, in the 1930s. And mm -hmm. that's kind of just uh, the tip of the iceberg. The story is quite vast and it's sprawling. It's a labyrinth that, that weaves uh, the infiltration of Nazis into the city's uh, social and political fabric. Uh, wow. which, which was quite real. It happened in the 1930s. Um, uh -huh. There is political corruption and espionage on, on that end. Uh, we are also introduced to a German doctor who, who is fond of America by his sympathies for the homeland. He is played yeah. by Rory Kinnear, who uh, also played uh, Frankenstein, Frankenstein's monster in the original Penny Dreadful. It's the same actor, mm -hmm. but different mm -hmm. character, of course. Um, there is a strange cult-like megachurch that sells God via radio evangelism. Uh, so that's a, that plays a big factor as well. There is the Jewish mafia. There is even a subplot involving a, a suave Latino gang that feels straight out of West Side, Sto West Side Story. Um, <laughs> so there's all these this very uh, disparate elements that come together. That is quite representative of the time period, though. Um, uh -huh. it's, it's very similar to the many frets that is parent show weaved. And, and much yep. like the OG Penny Dreadful, the show isn't uh, plot-driven per se. Um, it's all just table setting for more character-centric stories and mood pieces that feel like tone poems. Um, uh -huh. Visually, the show is stunning. The period detail, uh, ranging from the sets to the costuming, is, is lush and immersive. It's a, it's a gorgeous show. But where the show succeeds the most uh, is by once again using supernatural horror to uncover sociopolitical horror within a human metropolis. Uh, it's a story about human frailty displayed through capitalism, fascism, and racism. Uh, Magda the Demon uh, didn't invent or direct any of these things. Uh, she just yeah. kind of brought out your true colors um, uh, or, or the character's true colors. And, mm -hmm. and on the flip side, I can see how many new Penny, uh, many new to the Penny Dreadful style will be kind of frustrated by the, the slowish nature of the show if you're not familiar with you know, its vibe. Yeah. Uh, and the kind of the slipshot manner in which the plot is executed. But if you know the original show, it's not very plot-centric. It's not very story-centric. It's just very style-centric and mood-centric. Mm -hmm. uh, but one thing that does drag it down a bit, unlike the OG Penny Dreadful, there yeah. is no one on the show that kind of possesses the superhuman acting ability of Evergreen. Evergreen? Yeah, yeah I was about to ask that. Yeah, okay. Evergreen was kind of the force of nature that elevated Penny Dreadful and its kind of like meandering uh, tone poems, you know? Like yeah. it, it made it feel real and visceral just for the sheer force of her acting. And, yeah. and while City of Angels is full of competent actors, like good actors, you know, Nancy Dormer is fine in it, everyone's fine. It just feels like, um, I don't know how to describe it. It's like a theme of Scottie Pippen's lacking Michael Jordan, you know? Oh man. Okay. okay. Yeah, yeah. 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 Like that's like that's a that's the best metaphor <laughs> I can I can think of. La. So overall I enjoyed it a lot, but not quite on the level of any dreadful because Evergreen is in there. So it's a seven out of ten. 
Oh, okay. Cool. So it's still worth a catch. Oh yeah, still worth a watch, definitely. It's just like sometimes I miss the, the scenery chewing off of Evergreen being possessed. And that one, does Natalie Dormer have that? You know, Evergreen has one episode every season of Penny Dreadful where she just goes insane. Uh, like, in, like in the Seon in a sense, not really, because uh, okay. Natalie Dormer plays a villain here, so they don't really focus yeah. too much on her. She's more like the, the devil whispering in everyone else's ear. Um, right. There are great individual episodes for the, for the protagonists, or the various protagonists that they introduce, but uh, okay. no, nothing so much for Natalie Dormer. All right, all right, cool. All right. Uh, next up, I'll be talking about uh, Adventure Time Distant Lands. Um, hmm. This is, uh, happens, it's three years after its, you know, beautiful, emotional, open-ended series finale, uh, one of one of the greatest animated uh, shows of all time. It yeah. returns for a series, well, not a series, um, a, a mini-series of four-hour-long episodes entitled Distant Lands. Uh, the four episodes are spaced out as quarterly installments, uh, so every, oh. every three months there'll be a new one-hour episode, la, which is kind okay. of a big deal because, you know, the previous, the show, much like, you know, Steven Universe is 10-minute episodes, so having a yep. 40, uh, having a 60-minute episode is very long, so you know, they uh -huh. need time to produce it. So that's why it's spaced out every every three months. Uh, the first one, though, mm -hmm. it focuses on um, everyone's favorite adorable handheld uh, video game console, BMO, uh, as he travels beyond U to embark on a space adventure to save an alien world on the brink of destruction. Uh, Bimo, you know, he wears his sheriff's hat. He goes on a bizarre quest to help the citizens of Sate Planet, which is uh, actually a giant space station. Um, along the way, we meet another protagonist by the name of Y4, who is kind of a rabbit humanoid who becomes close mm -hmm. to Bimo and uh, risks being estranged from his people by following Bimo wherever it goes. Uh, much like the series, the, the special disarms you with quirk, uh, quirky joyfulness and vibrant color, and then like, bam, hits you with dark undertones and wrenching emotional moments. Uh, and it's all done on, on a grander scale with the, with the longer time frame, 60 minutes, as I mentioned. Yep. Uh, the show hasn't lost what made the... Sh uh, this special hasn't lost what the show uh, was, like, or what made the show so endearing. Um, mm -hmm. The oddity of Bimo's linguistic style is, is still very charming, as well as the overall mix of lighthearted adventure and adult themes. Made, it all made for a very entertaining special. And the only downside is that the emotional beats this time yeah. focus on new characters. So, huh. you know, the new Aiden characters that we meet like, on, on Bimo's yeah. adventure. So yeah. it's, it's kind of their story and Bimo is our proxy into their world. So I my em emotional investment in the climax isn't the same as it would be if it focused on regular characters like Finn or Jake or Marceline or Princess Bubblegum. So, you know, like, yeah, it's a great story, but for characters I don't kind of care about yet. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, so it's a good story, and it, it ties into Adventure, Star, Adventure Times' uh, surprisingly complicated mythology in surprising ways. Uh, Adventure okay. Time is like one of the biggest, most convoluted mythologies I've seen, uh, yeah. and this kind of adds one of the missing pieces into it. So it's quite nice. Uh, Interesting. Okay. Uh, otherwise, it's just it's a wonderful, solid return for Adventure Time. It's a seven point five out of ten for me. Oh, okay. Do does I mean is every special or of the four is every special going to be standalone? Every special is standalone, uh, and it takes place in different timelines. In a sense I that, see. like, uh, we it, spoiler alert in three, two, one. Uh, apparently, this special takes place as a prequel to Adventure Time. Uh, uh, because uh, we see Bimo landing on Earth and meeting Finn and Jake for the first time. Uh, so right. so. It was wise of them to not tell us that this was a prequel because uh, it gave yeah. us stakes for Bimo. We didn't know whether Bimo was going to die or not. 
There were yeah. several moments where Bimo was you know, on the brink of destruction. And if yeah. it was revealed, it was a prequel, you know, like it takes out the tension out of it. So uh... Uh, very nicely done. Um, okay. In in the following months though, uh, Distant Lands were written with uh, uh, I think the next one is called Obsidian. It stars mm-hmm. uh, Marceline and Princess Bubblegum on a mission oh, to nice. save uh, the Glass Kingdom. Uh, and then there is a prequel story about Peppermint Butler. And then the finale uh, next year will be a Finn and Jake reunion called uh, Together Again. Uh, oh. So yeah, uh, nice and I'm very happy to have the show back in my life. Sweet, cool. It's on uh, HBO Max, by the way, if you guys want to catch it. Uh, the hot new uh, streaming service out right now. Uh, next up, I want to talk about Promare, which is the first feature film from uh, Japan Studio Trigger, which is kind of best known for Kill a Kill and uh, Guren Lagan. Uh, mm-hmm. And it's directed by the studio's co-founder, uh, Hiroyuki Imaishi. Uh, and boy, this anime is like... Uh, it's like inj- injecting a, a shot of frantic energy and intense color into my eyeballs, you know? Um, <laughs> Promare is a, it's a insanely hyperkinetic anime. It's set uh, 30 years after a mysterious mutation causes humans to spontan- spontaneously combust, uh, creating a, a disastrous global fire known as the Great World Blaze that uh, extinguished most of humanity. Mm-hmm. Uh, from the ashes, the city of Promopolis rose uh, as a new sustainable society ruled by the seemingly benevolent Governor Cray Foresight uh, is installed. Uh, the remaining citizens, though, are still affected by the destructive power, which allows them to wield fire. Uh, the, the small minority of mutants are called the Burnish and are considered criminals for merely existing. Mm-hmm. So they are persecuted by a fascist uh, law enforcement agency ca- called the Freezer Force. Uh, and these uh, marginalized people tend to a fringe terrorist cell called the Mad Burnish, uh, who are an insurgent group targeting the system to free their incarcerated fellow Burnish. Uh, so at first, it kind of starts like this, you know, X-Men tale, uh, yep. where, where mutants are persecuted. But later on, there is a deeper conspiracy. Uh, apparently, the presence of the Burnish is causing Earth's magma to heat up and the planet will be, uh, will be doomed in six months because the Earth's core will explode. Uh, to avoid this, the villain's governor, Cray Foresight, has actually been rounding up innocent Burnish because he plans to use their power to fuel uh-huh. a warp engine that he invented. So he's going to use them as a fuel source. He's built a giant spaceship for himself and a few elite citizens that will send them to another planet in an effort to yeah. survive the uh, coming Armageddon. Uh, so there are more details involving a space-time rupture, a parallel universe inhabited by aliens and AI. Uh, there's an AI that lives in the Earth's core, by the way, and, and, and other things like that surface <laughs> as, as explanations. But I have to be honest, right? I really, really stopped paying attention to the story because it doesn't matter the, yeah. as much as the animation does because it's so insane and eye-popping and utterly bewildering. If you, <laughs> if you choose to watch it in Japanese and don't read the subtitles at all, I guarantee you, you'll still be entertained. But you'll be confused, yeah. but you'll be entertained. <laughs> like, Promare is a visual feast. It's it's so hyperactively imaginative. There's fiery duels and giant mechas, everything you expect from traditional, you know, big, big-scale enemy. Uh, the film is nearly two hours long, but it passes by in what feels like 20 minutes. Uh, it's a wildly entertaining and, and dazzlingly stylish enemy. I... I guarantee you the final mecha fight will be the most ep- will be the most epic mecha fight you've ever seen. Uh, there is no shortage of bravura action sequences that are just ridiculously dazzling. Uh, on the flip side, though, um, the the energy feels a bit kind of like overcompensation for a half baked story. Um, yeah, it could have been a, a lot more. Uh, that being said, I think Promare is best enjoyed if you don't think about it too deeply and and just enjoy the view. Um, so it's a six point five out of ten for me. Nice. nice. Uh, have you seen Promare, brother? 
Okay, so I when when it came out, right? It, I turned it on for ten minutes. Yeah. And I decided that at that moment in time, I couldn't take the kind of visual assault that it is. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It isn't beautiful. Yeah. Right, I'm I'm familiar with the stuff that Trigger puts out, and and you know I love Kill La Kill, I love Gurren Lagann, like those, especially Kill La Kill. I think took me by surprise, right? Um, especially mm-hmm. like the way that the story ended up being great, yeah, uh, from something that was just insanely bizarre. So I was I was kind of hype about it, but like really like just the first ten minutes alone, right? I was just like, okay, I don't think I'm in the right headspace. <laughs> yeah, you with this right now, like it's a lot. It's overwhelmingly a lot, and that's coming from someone who watches a ton of anime. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I stopped at ten minute mark, and I didn't pick it up again. It's good to know that like they keep up that kind. It's gorgeous. It really is in its own way. Mm. Right, it's like a it's 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 a frenzy kind of like fever dream, from what I can tell. Mm. Uh, but there are like there were even in the first few uh, the ten minutes, they were just like you know you could screen cap any one of those things, and it would you could frame it up as a work of art. Very oh, one hundred percent. It is. Yeah. Uh, this whole movie is an epilepsy warning. Yeah, e- exactly. So like as much as I was curious and hyped, I at that point in time I just couldn't. So. I will give it a try again at some point in time. It mm-hmm. just felt like a lot at, at that point in time. So it's good to hear that it's worth worth a watch. Yeah, yeah, it's not great or anything, but just like enjoy the view, like like I mentioned. Um, it's now available on Amazon Prime. It just popped up recently. I know it's been available in 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 Japan like last year in twenty nineteen, but yeah, it recently became available worldwide for free. If you're they subscri- did fairly well actually in Japan. I think when they debuted, they were eighth in Japan for a good few months. Oh wow, that's uh, yeah. pretty big, pretty big. I mean, it's yeah. not like your name or anything, but it's no, no, no. It's a great outing, Yeah, I mean, like especially, I mean, Trigger does have its own cult following because they've done Gurren Lagann and because they've done done um Kill, Kill, Kill. Kill. Yeah, yeah, which has become a cult classic. So I'm not at all surprised. But damn, for an animated movie in Japan, that's still fairly, fairly good. Yeah. yeah. Um. Next up, I'm going to be talking about uh the return of Harley Quinn uh in season mm. two. Uh, Harley Quinn, much like um. Doom Patrol is now on HBO Max. They've kind of like subsumed uh, the, the DC Universe titles. Uh, yep. So if you listen to our review of the animated Harley Quinn show back in January, uh, you'll know that I think me and Hardy think the world of the show and, and I was very happy to see the second season uh, return so quickly, so soon. Mm. Um, season 2 is set after the climax of uh, Harley Quinn's gloriously funny uh, first season where Gotham is in ruins, Batman is missing, the Justice League are stuck in a book, uh, Joker <laughs> is presumed dead, uh, and now finally free from her toxic ex, uh, Harley and her crew revel in the chaos of a lawless city. Uh, but to her displeasure, she finds that Gotham's remaining supervillains have divided up the city into personal kingdoms, restoring mm. a kind of order, um, an evil authoritarian order, but it's still some semblance of order. And uh, yeah. this season is mostly concerned with Harley going around murdering the other villains to uh, to kind of restore her favorite anarchy. Um, yeah. It is uh, an interesting twist on a famous Batman story called No Man's Land, if you call mm-hmm. it, uh, the comics, just told from the point of view of, of Harley Quinn. Um, sometimes she's out to kill Penguin and Mr. Freeze, and sometimes she finds frenemies like Catwoman, and other times she's trying to wrap her head around Poison Ivy and Kite Man's weird, but really affecting romance, really sweet yeah. romance. <laughs> and... and that romance is actually kind of the heart of the season, especially when, uh, as we all knew it would, uh, Ivy and Harley start in a, uh, start developing feelings for each other. So it's it's a great dynamic. Um, uh, one thing I did not expect, like I've always wanted 
when the show premiered, you know, and and you knew that yeah. Harley and Ivy were the main characters, uh-huh. you kind of you kind of always knew they were going to get together. That was the end game. It was it was Jim and Pam, you know. It was Ross yeah. and Rachel. Uh, they have to get together. That's what the fans want. What the show does magnificently is right, getting us so invested in Kite Man that when it happens, you almost wish it doesn't. Like Kite, Kite Man is such a ridiculously stupid guy. Yeah. But the bad, like you start, to, you start to feel for him, and you start to feel bad for him that like Ivy is cheating on him. That yeah. you are almost like, oh man, I kind of wish that uh, Ivy and Kite Man stuck together. Like that's great, right? Thing. Okay, man. Of all people. Yeah, he got okay. me so invested in Kite Man, and 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 besides that, it, it it continues to be a very profane, hyper violent, filthy. Ultra, uh, ultra hilarious show, uh, but the the key is that Harley Quinn never gets too dragged down in the Deadpoolisms because it has uh-huh. heart. It's surprisingly heartfelt when it comes okay. to Harley's found family. You know, like you are invested emotionally in all the characters. You know, there, uh-huh. there yeah, there is a hint of Deadpool two in this season where the tone and comedy at times don't quite play as well because the novelty factor has worn off. Yeah. So don't get me wrong; it's still a delight. It's just a bit of diminishing returns. Uh, right, right. But it kind of doesn't matter as long as the emotional core is there. As long uh-huh. as you're invested in character, uh, the show is doing something well. Um, so while it was a nine out of ten for me last season, uh, yeah. season two is an eight out of ten, uh, slightly down, but yeah. still eight out of ten is it's, still it's a very, very high, yeah. healthy recommendation. Yeah. Uh, yeah, uh, do catch up on Harley Quinn season two if you haven't seen it. Uh, really, really loved it. Uh, next up, I'm going to be talking about uh the third and final season of uh, Dark. Uh, this German TV series has kind of become a sensation <laughs> around the world. Um, uh, even in the age of like great German TV like Babylon Berlin and Deutschland '83, uh, Dark has kind of become the country's weirdly most popular export thanks to Netflix. Yeah. Um. So Dark. We are recording this on on the twenty seventh on a Saturday, uh, twenty seventh of June. Um, dark premiered today at noon, so I spent the last eight hours, uh, oh, literally God like noon it. to eight, just finishing the season. Uh, so it was a, it was a struggle. Uh, not 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 in a sense that like I didn't enjoy it, <laughs> but like it was a, a brain power struggle. Like, there's a lot to keep track of, you know. As, yeah. as you know, lah. Um, dark may have begun as a show about the disappearance of a young boy in a fictional small town called Winden and all the strange occurrences that happened there. So it, it kind of drew early comparisons to Stranger Things. But yeah. uh, as it unfolds, the show offers a, a much bigger and more complicated story about a, a family drama and a contemporary uh, Greek tragedy with a, with a lot of biblical and mythological references wrapped up in this uh, enigmatic, mind-boggling time travel saga. Um, there are a lot of moving pieces throughout each season, and, and the storylines take place within so many different time frames and timelines that untangling them would require days or even weeks. So I'm not going to try to lay out like what has mm-hmm. happened in the first two yeah. seasons. Yeah. But I will say that is the complexity that is what makes the complexity is what makes dark frustrating and so addictive. Mm. It, it pulls you into the show to solve a labyrinth of, of drama and time hopping mystery and it does so in the in, in the most airtight fashion. Like there are zero plot holes in this, you know, and I've I've been thinking about this a lot about dark. <laughs> and there there are have you seen Predestination by any chance? I have, yeah. Yeah, okay. So this is like if there were 24, like at my last count, 25, 24 to 26 different predestination paradoxes happening to different people uh, that are interlocked. Like, so, you know, 
yeah. it's brain melting. <laughs> it's a brain brain melting. Like everyone's family trees and futures uh, uh, are interlocked, and it's so tightly plotted that I kind of shudder to think of the mind mapping that goes on in the oh, God. in in the right yeah. room. And, and much like the first two season, the the third and final season ups the ante once again in terms of complex oh, plotting. Oh my goodness! Because yeah. um. Right after, at the end of season two in the finale, uh, Jonas gets a visit from Alt Martha from an alternate universe. Mm-hmm. Uh, and season three finds Jonas trying to stop the apocalypse in not one, but two different universes. Uh, it's at this moment where the, intro- the show introduces us to different versions of his characters, uh, some of which uh, were also thrown into a different timeline at the end of last season. Uh, there's a female version of Jonas called Ava now, who controls most of the chess pieces in I'm going to call it Earth 2, in Earth 2. So if you think like the six timelines in one universe in season two are well confusing, Uh. uh, get this. (laughs) This new season has two universes spanning 300 years. So 300 years of different timelines with Uh multiple realities inside each universe depending on what decisions they make. So yes, this sounds like a lot. (laughs) The story will get pretty confusing in the first half of the season, especially with so many... Uh, scientific mumbo jumbo, quantum entanglement, this paradox, that, etc., etc. Uh, yeah. But it always kind of manages to fit the pieces together by the end, and and it, all it requires really is if you pay attention, you can follow it. It's not right. rocket science. If you pay attention, you can follow it. It's not hard to follow actually, which is hard to do. Uh, mm-hmm. And I think this this season does require a lot of brain power, but it's, it, there's a certain satisfaction and addictiveness to the puzzle solving nature of the show. Uh, yeah. You know, trying to figure out the relationships. Characters, timelines, who is who is whose aunt, who is whose father, is your son, this other guy's father, etc. Um, and then, like, is this guy, this guy's father from Earth 1 or Earth 2, etc. Uh, and this season, like, amps it up to the nth degree, you know. Oh, but, you know, like, it's elaborate, but the pieces fit. And that's kind of the genius of the show. Uh, yeah. On the flip side, if the characters felt paper thin in the first two seasons, like they were chess pieces, uh, it, they feel even more like plot devices here because mm-hmm. um, it's difficult to engage emotionally with the romance and drama and trauma and tragedy when the characters themselves have no autonomy, you know, and, yeah. and n- none of them and the choices they make matter because, you know, they're all predestination paradoxes. Yeah. Uh, there is a way to make it emotionally fulfilling. Like, I, last year, I just saw Watchmen infuse a lot of feeling and emotion mm-hmm. into Dr. Manhattan in a much... Much, 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 much smaller scale version of a story like this. Uh, in, yeah. in a God walks to Abar. Uh, unfortunately, that doesn't succeed as well emotionally. Uh-huh. The show is all brains and no heart. But for what it's worth, it's still pretty entertaining. Once the overall overarching mystery starts tying together, so there's a satisfaction in solving it, lah. Um, I don't know how to. This is this is a weird metaphor. It's like watching a. A uh, world champion BJJ specialist compete in modern MMA, like it's <laughs> like it's so good at this one thing, you know. You watch the nuance and complexity of that one thing; it's beautiful, yep. you know. Yep. But then when it enters into different thing, like it doesn't know how to strike, it doesn't know how to yeah. do work, you know. It's just so ugly at the other parts. So I don't. <laughs> it's hard to judge as a show, like. It's not a complete fighter, is what I'm saying. Yeah. Uh, but what it does so well is so good that I'm giving it a seven out of ten. So it's still a recommend. Damn. Okay. Yeah, I still uh, remember making spreadsheets for season one and season two. Oh though. man, season one only had three timelines in yeah, one I, in one universe. <laughs> yeah, and I, I already I was just like wait what? So I I sat down after after watching it the first time I sat down I was like okay I need to map this out. Yeah, and I I kind of did that for most of season two as well, and until things started falling into place I was like ah okay sure, 
but this is crazy. I don't know how you did it in in one go. Seriously, it was tough. I had to, you know, the the rewind ten second button, yeah, like all the time to like <laughs> to to fully like let it sink in. Like what is happening? This is this Earth one, Earth two, like Earth one in eighteen eighty eight and Earth two in twenty fifty four. Wait, wait, which timeline is this? You know that kind of thing. Oh right? my god! Yeah, that's, uh, that's crazy. Yeah. Um, anyways, uh, do it if you enjoy dark. You will certainly enjoy. This is dark at its most darkest. Uh, if you know what I mean. <laughs> this is peak dark. If you enjoy dark, you will love this season. Uh, next up, I'm going to be talking about uh, Artemis Fowl. It just premiered on uh. Disney Plus because uh, COVID nineteen, as you know, has kind of shut down theaters around the world. So uh, it's kind of being released on on Disney Plus uh, on streaming. Mm-hmm. It is based on a really popular, acclaimed uh, YA fantasy novel series by Irish author um, Eowyn Colfer. Uh, mm-hmm. Artemis Fowl follows its title character, who is a young criminal prodigy who hunts down a secret society of fairies to find his missing father. Um, under Kenneth Branagh's direction, uh, this character now is just a really insipid, bratty, self-involved mm-hmm. heir. Uh, and yeah. the only interesting thing about this irritatingly smug and cheaply campy adaptation is how uninterested it is in its own source material. Um, yeah. it, it is kind of bland and incoherent with a paper-thin character development, unimaginative world-building, and worst of all, it bears little or no resemblance to the book. So I think give this a pass. It's a 1 out of 10 for me. Wow. That's yeah, kind they... of sad. I was a big fan of the series as, uh, when I was younger. Mm. I mean, like, uh... the, the books are always there for you. If you haven't, Read or seen Artemis Fowl, I recommend you read the books, but give yeah. the movie a pass because this is terrible. One of the, one of the worst movies I've seen uh, this year, definitely. Is it? Is it Brock now? <laughs> yeah, <laughs> it is right. Yeah, I mean, like he's he's not been doing well. Uh, what was the last one he did that I really? Murder on Orient Express. Oh my god! No, so no, yeah. It is him, okay. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So, uh, not great. Uh, his last decent, not, not even good movie, his last decent movie was Thor, actually. The first Thor. Yeah, I mean, I thought he did okay with that. I was more excited about it. I mean, I, okay, I was a, I was a much bigger fan of Gannon Brock now when he was doing his Shakespeare and stuff. Yeah. Right, like, Brockner as, as Hamlet, which he also directed, it was great. Like, I really enjoyed that. Oh, but man, like, I was a bit disappointed with how he did Thor. I, I thought he would make it a bit more grand and all of that, but it wasn't. Yeah. And then Murder on Orange Express was just horrible. Oh, with yes. With a stellar cast, mind you. All stuff. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Uh, quite unfortunate. Uh, so yeah, don't watch Artemis Fall at all. Um, okay. Next up, I'm going to be uh, talking about the latest in uh, the latest addition to the CW Arrowverse. Uh, based on its... Uh, it's called, it's called Stargo. Uh-huh. And and just based on the lackluster trailers, I was not expecting to enjoy Stargirl. Um, But to my surprise, I actually found Stargirl to be kind of fun. It yeah. is far from great. Uh, there is something about its brightness that feels refreshing. Uh, the okay. show almost feels like it was... It doesn't throw back to the 70s or 80s. It feels like it was legitimately made in the 1970s in terms of stone and, stone and style. It's, it's light and extremely family-friendly and extremely family-friendly. Like... Like your five year olds, you know, when you watch your old Saturday morning cartoons from the eighties, it feels like uh, that. Uh. Um, oh. So think of it as Justice Society in high school, and you kind of get the idea. 
Um, right. The character of Courtney Whitmore is is an intensely personal one to its creator Jeff Johns, who modeled the character on his uh, younger sister, who uh, unfortunately uh, passed away in a plane crash. Uh, that's why it's important to know that this this character, uh, why this character was created, and she was yep. always supposed to be a literal shining beacon of positivity in the darkest times. If mm-hmm. you kind of understand what this character is supposed to be, then you kind of kind of forgive its corny and cheesy elements. Yep. Um, it's a solid superhero show for kids but maybe not adults so it's a huh. five, 5 out of 10 for me interesting so I, I mean given that it's made for kids how does it sit within the Arrowverse mm, I think the Arrowverse is wide and diverse enough because this uh-huh. doesn't take place on uh, Earth Prime in Arrowverse it takes place on a different Earth I see okay cool yeah all right, all right. Yeah. Uh, next up we have uh, a new comedy on man I forgot what this was on I think it was on M- on Hulu Yes, uh, a new company on Hulu uh, called Crossing Swords. It's an uh, animated stop-motion comedy uh-huh. series. It's created by the people behind Robot Chicken. Uh, it follows Patrick, who is a good-hearted peasant who lends a coveted squire position in a royal castle. His yep. dream job quickly turns into a nightmare when he learns that his beloved kingdom is run by a hornet's nest of uh, horny monarchs and crooks and charlatans. Uh, even worse, uh, Patrick's valor has made him the black sheep of his family, uh, and mm. now his criminal siblings have uh, returned to li- make his life hell. Um, on the plus side, there is uh, a lot of remarkable detail to the stop-motion characters in this uh, Hulu, Hulu series. It's kind of a, the careful, handcrafted style you expect from uh, studios like Leica or Artman, Mm-hmm. Um, it's all, but unfortunately, it's all in service of incredibly dumb lowbrow jokes, propping oh, up a, a a thin story full of one-dimensional characters. Um, the sketch comedy structure of Robot Chicken, uh, kind of allows the the creators to deliver quick hit jokes. You know, like uh, yeah. each 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 sketch in Robot uh, Chicken is like thirty seconds, one minute. When you when you stretch it out to a half hour show. It becomes uh-huh. old really quick, you know. It's just the same fart jokes and penis jokes over and over and over again. Um, yeah, it, it quickly exhausts the humor potential and it's left with a repetitive uh, joke structure. So it's a 3 out of 10 for me. Uh, do not watch this. Highly disrecommend. Oh, man. Oh, man. Oh, well. Oh, well. Uh, next up, I'm going to talk about Black Quantum, which is an indie movie that hit uh, Shudder, which is a horror streaming service. It's a pretty mm-hmm. pretty typical zombie movie, except for one big difference. Uh, it's set on a First Nation reserve, which is uh, mm-hmm. you know, Native Americans, but it's not Native Americans, and uh, Indigenous people in Canada. They're called First Nations. Uh, it's set in a First Nation res- reserve, and it's told from the POV of uh, Indigenous people. It's basically a one-man movie. Uh, it's written, directed, edited, composed... Uh, casted everything costumed by a guy called Jeff Barnaby, uh, who was born in, in a first, uh, first Nations Reserve in Quebec. So uh, the premise offers a fresh twist on the zombie apocalypse genre in that uh, only, apparently, only non-Indigenous people can be affected yep. by the undead virus. So uh, huh. Indigenous people are, are immune to it. Okay. So of course, the zombies still pose a threat because they can kill you. But the mm-hmm. but the indigenous people can't be turned uh, The title itself, uh, Black Quantum, it refers to laws introduced in the 1930s to determine uh, whether a, uh, to kind of define a person's Native American identity and ancestry based on uh, genetics. Uh, and, and our main characters are the indigenous people on the reserve. And deep into the zombie outbreak, every white character has either succumbed to the virus or is begging for shelter in the in the makeshift for- fortress of uh, native land. Mm-hmm. Uh, and the metaphor of Barnaby's script 
it's very clear it's a comment on colonialism with white settlers bringing disease along with a general sense of greediness and false ownership over over indigenous land and it's a great addition to kind of the long legacy of social allegory in zombie films uh mm -hmm. it's not entirely race centric because it also it reminds you that humans will always turn on other humans uh, when things get desperate regardless of what race you are yeah. so some of the indigenous characters are heroic, some are not. But beyond showing us uh, a variety of people who all react differently when the apocalypse strikes, uh, the movie gives us insight into a community that's already endured plenty of hardship uh, even before the zombie arrived. The zombies arrived, so this is kind of nothing new for them. You know, it's just another oh. just another genocide. So it has all the hallmarks of a satisfying zombie movie. Uh, the action is gruesome. It's creative with a lot of seven hits, you know, crawling torsos, uh, operatic sprays of blood all over the place. Um, the only downside is like beyond its great metaphor, it's a pretty standard zombie movie. Like it's a it's a competent one, but you kind of yeah. seen all the all of it, all the beats have been done before, uh, So it's a it's a six out of ten. Like great metaphor, but as a movie, it's just okay. Uh, all right. Yep. Uh, I think that's it for uh quick hits. Mm. this month uh, of all the stuff that I talked about is there like anything that, pre that caught your ear that you want to watch yeah I mean I'm definitely going to give Pumari another shot for sure mm -hmm. uh, I might catch Penny Dreadful I think uh, I'm definitely going to I'm, okay I'm definitely going to catch up on Harley Quinn I'm mm -hmm. uh, definitely going to catch up on Adventure Time nice. uh, for sure um, yeah I think that's basically those are the ones I'm definitely not touching Artemis Fowl uh, no. sounds horrible yeah. Yeah, crossing sounds so, so pretty bad as well. I'm not sure about Stargo. Like outside of Legends, I haven't really been keeping up with anything from the Arrowverse. Mm -hmm. Um outside of the crossovers that we get that we hear. But yeah, that sounds about Nice, right. yeah. Yeah. I, I think Harley Quinn is probably the one that uh that is most worth watching of of the bunch. Mm, yeah, it, it yeah. does. It does. Yeah. Cool. I will definitely be checking that out. In mm -hmm. fact, I'm going to queue that up on my list of things to watch. Nice. Uh, and finally, uh, before we leave, we have our mm -hmm. poll list. Uh, this is where we recommend reading material for you guys. Um, and for this month, I'll be recommending a title or graphic novel called Notes on a Case of Melancholia or mm. A Little Deaf. Um, I'm sure you all remember the Perry Bible Fellowship. It's a very famous and morbidly funny comic strip uh, that kind of uh, debuted on the internet. It's kind of one of the OG web comics. Uh, yep. It debuted in 2001. Uh, its writer and author, uh, Nicholas Gerwich, is back with a longer form graphic novel called uh, Notes on a Case of Melancholia, as I mentioned. Uh, the graphic novel features the Grim Reaper himself as we follow Death trying to kill an old man but isn't having much luck. Uh, mm. Death is off his game lately and he's been depressed due to family issues. Uh, luckily, the man he failed to kill is a psychoanalyst and wants to help. Um, the old man himself is a widower, so he's no stranger to death or depression. Um, as it turns out, uh, death has a child who should be taking up the uh, family scythe or family business, uh, <laughs> yeah. but, but isn't. Uh, for example, uh, daddy, daddy death uh, instructs its child to reap a bunny uh, but Little Death instead offers it a flower. Uh, the child leaves the scythe on the ground and runs around with little animals. This all leads to a this all leads to a hilariously morbid twist at the end that will remind you of a uh, Perry Bible Fellowship's most fucked up story. So I'm not going to reveal what it is. Uh, mm -hmm. But even beyond before then, like, it's a darkly hum humorous and brilliantly illustrated uh, tale. Um, 
but despite this playfulness, uh, Gerich's uh, this whole book, right, is is done in a black etching art style that feels very like substantial and somber. You see, um, all the book's illustrations are etched, like not with a not with an ink or a brush or a computer, but like painstakingly scratched onto pieces of clay with a pointy metal tool. Mm-hmm. Um, so Gerwich actually uh, he revealed that he hurt himself uh, a lot when he when he made this book. Because you know uh-huh. the, the it strains your hands and sometimes he cut himself. Uh, he had to go to a doctor and eventually into rehab. Uh, because doing doing the books uh caused a stress in stress injury to his hands, which is why it took so long to make. Um, but the result is worth it because the etchings uh, create this dense physical images that demand thoughtful study. Um, on every page there are thickets of tiny hatches that slow down your eye and force you to contemplate compositions, details, and themes, which is important because this book has no dialogue. It is, it is all done via, the whole story is told just visually. There are no word bubbles or thought balloons or anything. Every part of the story is, is expressed through art. And, uh-huh. and coming in at 48 pages total, um, this may seem like a light book, but the etchings will kind of make you stare at the book for ages as you kind of try to you know, uh, see the compositions and metaphor and, and various things that uh, Nicholas Gerwitz is trying to do. Um, highly recommended. It. It's an 8 out of 10 for me. Nice. Sounds good. Yeah, okay. yeah. Uh, I ordered this on Amazon, so you can probably buy it at your local bookstore if it is open. Uh, if not, you can just order it online. Uh, as a side note, I actually, uh, I, I just realized actually when I was writing this up that I actually know Nicholas Gerwich's brother, Dan Oh, Gerwich. really? Yeah, uh, this guy called Dan Gerwich, who is uh, his brother. In the early uh-huh. 2000s, like uh, me and my ex were big fans of College Humor, uh, if you remember the website. Yeah. And uh, Dan Gerwich uh, was one of the hit writers. Uh, so oh. we became friends on Tumblr, uh, and then he mentioned he was taking a vacation to Singapore, so I ended up taking him around town. Uh, so I, I still have it on my Facebook, and we still kind of keep in touch. Uh, but his brother is also super busy now because he is the head writer for Last Week Tonight with John Oliver for the past oh. five years. So it, this is yeah. a very fu- funny family. Uh, <laughs> both brothers are incredibly brilliant. Oh, yeah, uh, man, and and yeah, just a quick little side note. Um, yeah, that's it for the thirty-first episode of Genre Equality. Next month is probably going to be the the shortest episode in history because we only have two main topics. Um, let uh, Japan sings twenty twenty is a highly ad- anticipated anime coming on Netflix, which I think we yep. both will review for a main mm-hmm. topic. And otherwise, there is the Sandman audiobook, which covers the first three chapters of Sandman that's coming out. So we'll review that too as a main topic. I think it's one of the first audiobooks we've ever re- reviewed as a main topic. And yeah. other than that, it's all quick hits, man. <laughs> oh, wow. Okay. Like quick, in quick hits, I'm going to be covering uh, Snowpiercer, Twilight Zone, Brave New World, uh, The Old Guard, Central Park, Warrior Nun, uh, Whisker Away, uh, and other things, but there really isn't any big titles out next month except for Japan Sings and Sandman. So um, we could get that done in half an hour or like forty-five minutes, I think. Wow. Okay. Well, we'll see. Things might pop up. I might jump on this. Uh, I might jump on the Stone Piercer because I've got a couple of episodes in already. Okay. Okay. Yeah. yeah. I, I, okay. I actually don't have. I've seen the first four and then I stopped. And but I. I don't uh, want to continue already. But I have my thoughts already. If you go mm, further than that, then maybe you can tell me whether the show uh, gets better or worse from, from there. Yeah, I'll see. I'm I'm three episodes in and I stopped. So, hmm. Okay, okay. We'll see how it goes. We'll see we'll how, see how it goes. We won't make any promises. Next yeah. But I, I am kind of uh, psyched for Sandman. I think the voice cast looks amazing. Uh, yep. did, did you see the, the cast list that Gaiman put up? 
Yeah, I did. Uh, I mean, like, anything Gaiman does seems to draw, like, a fair bit of, like, good people to it, you know? Mm. So, I'm definitely looking forward to that. Um, I'm, I'm curious to you... see. Uh, sorry, uh, go ahead. No, I mean, like, uh, do we know what the release schedule is going to be like for, for the other episodes? Uh, not sure. They've only announced uh for this year. They've only announced uh July fifteenth. Uh, the first collecting the first three chapters. Uh, mm-hmm. um, which is Preludes and Nocturnes, uh, The Doll's House, and I think Fables and Reflections. Uh, right. will be compiled into one audio drama book. La, and I'm interested to see how. because uh, I've heard a lot of audio books that just basically read out prose books. Yeah. This is a comic book. You know. Yeah. It's diff. It's different. Like how they're going to describe settings, backgrounds, and things like that. Yeah, it'll be interesting. Let's yeah, uh, and, and, and on the plus side also, um, Audible offers a th- free 13-month trial, a uh, 30-month, 30-day trial, a one-month <laughs> trial. Uh, so if you are too cheap, you can actually listen uh, to Sandman for free when it comes out on July 15th on Audible. And of course, Japan Sings is on Netflix. I'm psyched for that as well. Yep. Yep. Uh, till next time, uh, this has been Hitzer. I'm Misa. Uh, goodbye, guys. Ciao.